0: Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds.
1: Every week, we bring you our pick-up articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing
0: in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm
1: Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show.
0: Hi Julia, can you believe it? It's episode 9 of the Picklist podcast. How has your week been? I can't believe
1: it, but I'm so thrilled we're 9 episodes in and going very strongly indeed. Um I've had a really good week, thank you. The weather up here is really nice. It was 26 degrees up here in Newcastle at the moment, so I've been enjoying the sun. Um, and I've also been kept very busy uh, putting together an online course at the moment um, looking at how to build up your profile and get coverage in the trade media so that's been keeping me very busy how about you what have you been up to
0: yeah managed to enjoy a little bit of the sunshine which is an absolute treat as you say it's been lovely and warm and I've just been doing some business planning for my uh, business at, at Laven Park which has been great and it's a, a nice opportunity to take uh, a bit of time out and see uh, how things are looking differently post Covid but we've uh, had a guest on the show today haven't we which is really really exciting.
1: Absolutely we have Julia Kessler who is one of the founders of Nix and Kicks Uh She is a brilliant guest. I think you're going to love listening to
0: her take on this week's articles. And again, we've got a fantastic sponsor supporting us this week.
1: Yes, absolutely. We're pleased to say that Shopper Intelligence is sponsoring this week's episode. Shopper Intelligence is the first and only syndicated measurement programme built from the direct voice of food and drink shoppers with unique storework metrics in dozens of categories, giving you why and how shoppers buy, not just what they buy.
0: If you'd like to find out more, just go to shopperintelligence.com and the link is in our show notes. Shall we go?
1: Julia, welcome to the show. We're so thrilled to have you on. Thanks, Julia. I'm very, very happy to be on the show with you and Laura. Julia, tell us... Very briefly, for people who are not familiar with Nix and Kicks, very briefly, what's the brand all about?
2: Absolutely. So Nix is actually German and that's because my co-founder and I, we're both originally from Germany and Nix in German means nothing. We don't use anything artificial, we're 100% vegan and we don't use any refined sugars either. And then kicks us because we're adding a little hint of cayenne to the drink. So we're here to spice up the soft drinks market. We've been going for for some time and we're available in most of the grocers and casual dining sector as well as hospitality.
1: Excellent. Now, I imagine hospitality in particular has presented some interesting challenges of late. And I know there's some articles coming up that will give us an opportunity to... um, for us to talk to you about your recent experience as well but um, you have brought some really interesting articles for us to get our teeth into as well why don't you tell us about the first article
2: that you've brought for us yeah i would love to um actually so the article is from the website the vegan review and it the title is why alternative milk is milk according to the EU. Milk, you probably have seen it as well in retailers, can be written in, in all sorts of different ways. Um, either milk being crossed out, milk with Y, milk without bi I. Um, and they're all plant-based alternatives. In 2017, the European Court of Justice, they made a landmark position on the labeling of non-dairy products. And how that came about, I find that really interesting because there's actually um, a German brand called Tofutown and it's a German plant food company and they advertised their product as tofu butter, veggie cheese and rice spray cream to name a few. Um, but then actually, the German association that monitors unfair competition pointed out that branding non-dairy products as an alternative um, to dairy was an EU legislation and an infringement, um, which Tofutown actually went to, to try and defend it um, because they basically said that terms like butter and, and cheese was never exclusively used on their product. They always said, for example, tofu butter, And and it was always in that association with the plant origin of the ingredients. And they also argued that the consumer obviously comprehends those terms now, and that has transformed in recent three years. So the EU then actually reasoned that milk and its related term can only be used for advertising products that originate from animals. And then you could argue, well, if you then think about vegan meat, right, that that could also be applied. But then the uh, ECG actually stated that that is completely different and a different subject altogether. And I just thought that is really, really interesting because, A, I actually never really thought about why oat milk is not called oat milk. Um, And for me, it was super normal to when i when I go and shop milk alternatives i go to the sort of milk aisle and and i i, I never really question it and I, I also never really questioned why vegan burgers can be called burgers um and, and obviously clearly milk can't be called milk if it's an, an alternative so i found that really really interesting it's going to be very interesting what is going to happen after the uk has exited the eu and if there will be other rules and regulations and who knows maybe maybe other areas are going to be challenged um so the article also talked about you know there's obviously no replacement for anything for eggs and um, burgers and and other animal derived products I and mean, that's going to be really really interesting to see if that's going to be one of the first cases of of many There, the ECG has to be involved.
0: It's a really interesting article and and you've described it extremely well and and the area that I'm probably closest to is the the meat side and I know uh, for for the meat sector it has been a long frustration that some of these plant-based products have been using um, animal-type descriptors for so long but I guess that's the the piece that's described in the article, isn't it? When is a term that's used for so long then becomes generic and synonymous? Um, and I know, particularly in the US, there has been some challenges about using um, steak and burger and those traditional meat-related names to to plant-based and uh, and others, but in uh, lab-based products. But I guess the longer that, that happens, the harder it is for the the meat sector or the dairy sector to try and reverse that. Because yeah, as you say, you know, you walk into Starbucks and you say soya milk, and um, uh, and and folks know what that is. Uh, and, I, and I guess the farming community gets hugely angered with that,
2: don't they? They feel that their category is being um, challenged. Now there is so much blending of of different ways of how people eat, right? Like, and the, the term flexitarian is now more and more common, right? And people are, you know, five days maybe vegan and two days they're carnivores, um, and anything is possible nowadays and and i actually i think it's it's time to fr- embrace it more
1: i thought what was interesting about the article actually was um this is obviously this is a kind of explainer article isn't it it's um i didn't think there was anything particular that had happened in in that area right now that had prompted it but i think it's a it's interesting that this is clearly an ongoing issue that is still being debated quite heavily that sort of debate about what kind of terminology is acceptable to use for them for some of these alternatives as you say Julia that I think we're going to see that more and more because the market is moving so quickly consumer behavior is moving really quickly and sometimes the way we think about terminology doesn't necessarily keep pace with that um and also of course there are some really quite dicey political and ideological battles to to fight in all of this as well it's a sort of microcosm isn't it of a of a wider debate uh, that sort of plays out uh, around language use the area that really fascinates me is when you start talking about lab grown cell cultured meat you know, where you're not talking about a plant-based alternative, but something that is on a cellular level, the real deal, it is meat, it is dairy. But of course, there is still a requirement, I think, certainly at this stage to communicate that to the consumer. So how language use is going to play out for those sorts of products. I think that's going to be absolutely fascinating um, fascinating to see. But yeah, really interesting issue that I think we're going to be grappling with um, for, for some time to come. Julia, what's your first pick? So my first pick this week is from The Observer, and it's an article by Jay Rayner, It's sort of being pitched as the inside story of the food supply chain during COVID-19. And I think that's a pretty good way of looking at it. It's also an incredibly useful article. So if you are in a position where you feel like, There's been so much coverage around what's happened with coronavirus and the impact on the food system. You don't even know where to start or you're maybe, you know, not entirely sure that you've kept up with all the key issues. I think this is a really good primer on what has happened in the food system and some of the big issues that have been raised as a result of the outbreak. Um, It's also a great opportunity to hear from some leading industry voices and commentators from a Quite a wide range of, um, of of backgrounds because it's such a wide ranging article. It really goes from you know what's happened in the poultry and beef sector right down to the massive surge in online grocery buying. I'm not going to be able to uh, summarise everything, and I'm not going to attempt to either. And um, I did want to highlight one thing that I thought was um, was important, and that's the impact of the crisis on food charities and redistribution services for surplus food the article sets the scene it starts by telling the story of Kim Master who runs a service in Sheffield that redistributes surplus food from supermarkets to local residents and it sort of describes her experience of what happened when panic buying first started and she would go to her local Tesco to pick up the surplus stocks that she was going to redistribute And there was nothing there because the shelves had been stripped bare and now there was no surplus. And now she didn't know how to feed these people, how to distribute food to to these people that had become very dependent, very reliant on on her service. And of course, we saw some some really good efforts throughout the crisis to help charities and to help services like that once it started being on the radar and people understood just how exposed certain people had been left by this crisis some of the big supermarkets making some very high profile donations and and stepping up their support as well but what sort of stayed with me was was a quote from uh, Lindsay Boswell at Fair Share right at the end of the article where he says my main message is please don't think this crisis is over. I'm terrified of the long-term issues, of the number of people who are going to need the help of frontline charities for a while to come. And I think Lindsay's words of warning are, um, are very well made. I think we have to make sure that this is an issue that doesn't drop off the radar because it doesn't stop just because the sort of acute phase of the crisis is over people are going to need these services more than ever, especially if we're going to have a prolonged recession after that. Julia, what did you uh, what did you make of, of the article?
2: Yeah, so first of all, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it's a really great, great summary of what has happened. And being a supplier to, to many of the people mentioned in the article, I, I could see it firsthand. And um, I always felt... It was very interesting how the different retailers have dealt with it and stepped up and and i think we all have done a tremendous amount of work to step up to the challenge and it also talks about the fact that you know people like with food and breaks who historically have been in in food service have stepped up and and supported um getting goods to people in need um it's it's really really interesting because they they all had to innovate on their feet and they all had to come up with a solution to a problem which never existed before and and you can still see the after effect um so in some of the retailers because of the different supply chain models they run so so you you either have a pull-in model which is basically okay so it gets sold through and then you you order it back in or you have a push-in model, and and some of the major retailers were completely switched to a push-in model, which then means they still have their warehouses full with pasta and toilet paper, and they're still running out of space, even though the the problem in itself is is built, but because they overestimated how long that will continue, that people will buy that, so they, they now have a space issue. But it never even occurred to me that the retailers play such a big role with food donations as well. So it's great to see that the government has stopped, stepped up and, and that retailers have stepped up. And I think the article also brought it out really, really well that let's not kid ourselves, like retail has benefited from a revenue point of view massively. So they have a role to play to to help the situation. And it's great to see that they're doing it, but let, let's hope they don't forget that role.
1: What I also thought was um, was interesting in the article, they talk um, at at various points about what's what happened when the food service side of the food market essentially got shut off and the sort of imbalances in the system um, that that resulted from that. I'd love to know from from your perspective as as a supplier, as a brand that has a presence in retail and and in food service how did you experience that and how have you had to respond to to the impact that's had on your business
2: yeah i mean it's it, it's been some nerve-wracking um weeks um to say the least because we we just didn't know i mean you know some retailers will, will better behave than others but but you know in simplified terms because there was such a massive demand suddenly of uh toilet paper tin foods and eggs that was and then if you think about toilet paper that was taking up all the space on the lorries and there was just no space for non-essential items and as much as i like to be uh and think that i'm essential i'm not essential uh, I, I do get that um so what we had to do is we had to adjust, we had to be flexible. we had to adjust our minimum order quantities. Um, we um, you know we got asked by a lot of big um, companies if they if we could take stock back um, if we could accept ninety day term payment terms, which for small businesses is really really challenging um but the majority of retailers they've been really well they've been really strong in in terms of how they responded um i had FaceTime with all of them well, as in an over zoom and have, there was a real sense of community actually and wanting to help each other and um and i have the feeling that especially with the guys they, they really recognize they have to help smaller businesses like us to survive
0: i thoroughly enjoyed the article and it was a great long read uh from jay um and it reminded me of a, a documentary that was on last week actually which we might want to put in the show notes on bbc2 behind supermarkets and it, exactly as you were describing there you to hear about you know toilet tissue taking up so much so much space and they were showing sort of regional distribution centers and you know that are just in time and how it works and it was really good to, to see behind the curtain on, on some of the major retailers that the um article gave some great stats as well didn't it in terms of tesco for example saying that they were on six hundred and fifty thousand online deliveries and they upped that to one million pretty quickly and just that agile fleet of foot way that you know I, I i'm really proud of uk retail it, it just it rolls up its sleeves and makes it happen and it only does that through amazing supply base as well and it's really interesting julia to hear you saying you know it, it felt more of a community and that camaraderie was important um, so I, I thought it was a great piece. Absolutely, Laura. Tell us about your first pick this week. So my first pick is from Supermarket News, um, and this is Arhal Del Hayes releases first human rights report. Uh, and this is the European retailer who also has a, a lot of stores and uh, different faces in the U.S. Seven thousand in total. Um, And they've been working on this human rights report for the last two years, and they're at pains to say this isn't a knee-jerk reaction uh, off the back of COVID. And it aims at setting principles of how food retailer interacts with customers, employees and vendors partnering across the global markets and supply chains. Um, And their CEO, um, Franz Muller, talks about these events once again make us realise that as a global retailer, we have a pivotal role to play in society. And I just found this article hugely interesting about how retailers can't just position themselves on one thing it's not just about you know being the cheapest or um you know being the quickest or all the rest of it they need to have that well-rounded offer that consumers want to see more and more of not only the the how they deliver to us but the who and that person and that personal touch of not only employees of the retailer it's set themselves and we've spoken about that quite a lot on the show haven't we about you know the pressure on um individuals working in retail and the supply chain uh, but also what goes before that and how we make sure that they're, they're well looked after so what the retailer has done is they've looked around six human rights issues and they've based them from the UN um, Global Sustainable Goals for um, uh, Global Growth uh, of, of which th- there's about 18 of those but they've looked at, uh, to focus on six to begin with and they are health and safety, compensation, discrimination and har- harassment freedom of association, women's rights and forced labour. And I think one of the reasons that this is really important as well is we're seeing more and more, not only coming off the back of COVID, but also the push of Black Lives Matter and what that means for wider community and to seeing retailers step up to that and to be transparent. Um, I think it's really powerful what they're trying to do. And we know a lot of retailers have this work already, but to be more transparent and it not just to be hidden away on a corporate page in a website and to be ticking a box for um, your shareholders, I think is really key. One of the other things that that springs out and is, I guess is a focus for me, is this women's rights point. Um, Working for meat business women and trying to get more women into the meat industry um, because it's very male dominated, um, I see this as a huge trigger for sectors such as the meat sector because I think retailers will start to look back down the supply chain and I'm really keen to get your thoughts, Julia, on what you're asked as, as a supplier into, into retail about not only the uh, welfare of meat for argument's sake or you know the process and the hygiene and the BRC and all that great stuff of which there is already a bit of a human element but more so about what's your talent pipeline look like? What's your diversity inclusion uh, policy? Who's on your board? What do they look like? How many non-exec directors have you got? And I think, you know, coming off the back of COVID, you um, seeing the groundswell behind Black Lives Matter and others I think it's going to make retail look quite different and for the better and to drive change and to drive change probably a pacier way than we've seen before. So as I say our whole del have been looking at this for two years but it's at a very opportune time for them to push this forward. They'll look at this initial six and then go out to the next six in future. What are your thoughts? Is this New and groundbreaking, or is this something you know that we see all the time, and it's just a, a corporate puff piece? What do you think, Julia?
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting question because when I read it, I'm like, well, I guess everybody has that already, and 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 I didn't do enough diligence to check whether that, that is the case. But at least before Nixon kicks, I worked in corporate all my career, and they always had policies around that and it was always ingrained. So so I I actually asked myself, is it a marketing stunt? But even if it is, the fact that they are raising the awareness and like you said, like it forces then other retailers to step up and and actually take a stand at that. I think if it does that, that's great, right? And if it is marketing stand, it's the right marketing stand. Um, but I I was also wondering how would they to what degree will they go through with the due diligence of their supply chain? And because traceability is really, really hard, and and how far will they take it? And will they exclude, will they really exclude certain brands? If if for example a big supplier of, of them will be in the press tomorrow for something which is maybe not done correctly, will they delist them? Because for me, that would be the expectation that if you shout about it, then really stick to your words.
1: It's an interesting challenge, certainly. I think I would look at a report like that and say, yes, I'm sure there are policies like that behind the scenes at many organizations already. I also didn't look at this and think, oh, well, that seems like a really groundbreaking new commitment. Um based on on what was on the article. At the same time, I think there is benefit in formalising some of these commitments and communicating them in a structured way through an annual report, because that, I think, adds a different layer of accountability. And I would hope that there are some metrics attached to that as well. I think that's always the key thing where you say, okay, so you are trying to have a more diverse, have a more inclusive supply chain or, or supplier base, you're trying to do this, that and the other on human rights, exactly what are the metrics that you're going to be using to, to measure that success. I think if you do have metrics, and you do get into a pattern where you are now publicly reporting on some of these commitments and on your progress on an annual basis, I think that is positive. Julia, tell us about your second article this week
2: absolutely um i i'm I'm glad I picked it because it's so topical <laughs> and um it, it's actually by the Gar- from the Guardian written by Heather Stewart and it's about reopen pubs in England may require thinkers to check in so she she's basically talking about the fact um that customers will be asked to be checking in and also goes on about the hypothesis that the one two meter rule is now turned into one meter plus rule which has now been confirmed um she then goes on that obviously there was supposed to be a proper app for track and tracing which obviously hasn't been unfortunately uh, finalized and and then the article goes on about the fact that um Matt hancock suggests that there, there should be face coverings, and that does reduce the submissions, and that basically the the stores and outlets, they have to find ways to really reduce risk for when they can't adhere to a two-meter social distancing rule. There are a lot of independent scientists, and they have basically outlined that it's still not safe um, to relax the, the distancing rule for indoor, and the proposal of reducing it to one meter plus would effectively end social distancing and peep, it would make a big difference to potentially the BAM community and low-paid workers and put them at a lot greater risk than we currently are. I honestly, I don't 100% know how I feel about it, because on on one hand, I think it's, it's great that the economy will get a boost and that um the outlets can can open again and and otherwise i think it would have been really devastating for for that industry but at the same time i would have wished for more clarity about what one meter plus really really means and like the the constant talk about covering your face is recommended but it's not imposed um so I think that is really really challenging I I'm just a little bit apprehensive about the fact that it's going to be open on a Saturday and and the, the rules are not 100% defined
0: so really interesting article and as you say the the confirmation that this is all going to happen on dubbed super Saturday is going, is going to be a real big challenge and, you know, thinking about the article and and watching the the press around it, it's going to put, it's great for industry and it's great to get that food service sector open, definitely, because the the pressure that they're under, it is huge. But I think for the individuals working there, it's going to be tough, isn't it? Because, you know, um, uh, consumers need to be seated to be eating or drinking. They can't drink at the bar, although they can go and order a drink from a bar. But, you know, to to later on in the day, or later on in the evening to be able to police and manage that is is going to be tough and ultimately going to cost um, venues more to make sure that that's happening with potentially lower uh, number of um, uh, consumers so it'll be really interesting to see what consumers do.
1: Yeah, I think I'm. Uh, I I agree with the with the other Julia. Um, I'm also really torn on this. I think on the one hand, it's it's great to see the sector reopen, and by God, it needs it. On the other hand, I am also very apprehensive about the lack of clarity. And I think I would echo your comments about face coverings in particular. I I really wish there was a greater level of clarity here about face coverings and I think this language around recommending certain measures and then really leaving it up to individual people to make decisions and particularly to individual businesses to enforce that as well I think that is putting so much pressure on frontline staff as well and maybe you're a shop owner or um, a pub owner or restaurant owner who really would quite like to enforce face coverings in your venue But how do you communicate that? How do you deal with people if the shop down the road doesn't and the pub down the road doesn't either? And now you've got people showing up without face coverings and your security staff or just generally your staff are having to explain to people why they can't hear and having arguments. I think that's a really unsatisfying, unsatisfactory situation for people to be in, in what is already a stressful situation, so... Yeah, happy they're opening. I wish they were given more support by through clearer messages from government to, to make this as manageable
0: and as safe as possible. And I think to pick up on one of your points there, that confusion, it's so easy, isn't it? Because we're hearing different messages for England than Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And on top of that, from the 4th of July, once we go to a metre plus, what does that mean for grocery retailers that have spent millions on signage saying two meters and and you know everywhere you go now it's you know it's really clear that it's two meters is someone going to reorder all of that and to re-merchandise the stores with all of that or just think it's fine one meter plus is two meters or is someone going to go around with a sharpie one night and just change all the twos to a one because it's just going to, as you say everyone's going to do something different and then it's going to get muddling and then everyone will just say oh you know i, I can't be bothered with it let's just not bother and crack on as we were. julia what's your second pick so,
1: my second pick this week is from The Economist, and it's an article called Can Amazon Keep Growing Like a Youthful Startup? This article is an Amazon nerd's dream. It's, um, it's a really chunky read. I, I made you work quite hard for this, um, this week's episode. Um, it's one of their in depth briefings that The economy, uh, Economist does on, on a regular basis, and um, it's fascinating. Um, and it looks at a whole range of aspects around Amazon's growth ambitions and its growth trajectory and also its entrepreneurial culture. And I guess the culture is sort of the starting hook for this article. Um, they are essentially asking, you know, Is that entrepreneurial culture that's driven Amazon ever since it was founded in 1994, is that sustainable? Can it hold on to that culture as it becomes ever bigger and enters ever more markets and and new segments? And this entrepreneurial culture that they're talking about that's so famous is based on Jeff Bezos's famous day one philosophy. And what that philosophy is essentially is uh, saying it's always going to be day one at Amazon. We are never going to get to that comfortable day two where things get stale and we take things for granted. We are going to always behave like a startup and we're going to treat each day as day one with the same level of energy and the same level of risk-taking and experimentation that you would expect from a startup. And as I said, the article is essentially saying, well, is that a viable strategy when you're now generating 280 billion a year in revenue as they did last year and um, and the answer I think to that question is yeah probably is a viable strategy it probably is a viable strategy if you're amazon Um, There are, of course, a growing number of challenges that are are facing that business, but um, it's still got quite a lot going for it. Um, One of the things that it's got going for it is Amazon Web Services, or AWS. And I think that was the most interesting part of this article. Um, Amazon Web Services, or AWS, is Amazon's cloud computing division. It has been a growth engine and a cash cow for Amazon for quite some time, and it's underpinned a lot of Amazon's really gutsy um, strategic moves, including things like the acquisition of Whole Foods Market and and that further push into the grocery retail market. And, And what I think is so interesting about this exploration of AWS and what it means to the Amazon model and the role it plays in the Amazon Empire is that. I mean, certainly for me, for someone who looks at Amazon very much through the lens of the retail division, and very much through the lens of logistics, you know, we talk about what kind of innovation they bring around online shopping, um, online delivery. But of course, Amazon is much, much larger than that. And it has many more uh, fingers and many more pies. Um, And I think AWS is one of those things that perhaps isn't necessarily on our radar. It certainly wasn't as much on the radar, um, on my radar, um, as it should have been. So what should you know about AWS? Well, it started life in 2003 when two engineers at Amazon suggested that Amazon's in-house IT infrastructure could be provided as a service to other companies. That simple idea has today grown into the leading provider of cloud computing services in the world. And it's a hugely profitable part of Amazon's business. Last year, the article says it contributed $9.2 billion in operating profits. That's pretty chunky. Um, And of course, that's impressive in its own right. But I think what the article argues is that it's really the strategic importance Um, around AWS that makes it so significant so it's positioned Amazon um, in a way that allows it to make these really exciting big bets on new sectors on experimenting in areas like like grocery retail just because AWS is so profitable and is such a great cash cow there's another reason why AWS is so important to Amazon The company is facing growing competitive, growing regulatory pressures on a number of different fronts. Um, There is growing debate around workers' rights, for instance. There is um, rivals such as Shopify increasingly pushing into um, parts of Amazon's business and, and vying for market share. There are some costly um, Chinese and Indian ventures that haven't quite worked out the way that uh, Amazon perhaps thought they would. Um, So the sheer heft and profitability of a division like AWS is also helping to keep investors very happy and calm at a time when, when pressure is building around other parts of the business. It's an incredible asset, at the heart of Amazon, that underpins much of, um, or many of the most eye-catching bets and experiments that Amazon um, is making, and that's allowing um, the company to hold on to that risk-taking entrepreneurial culture um, for for the years to come. Julia, were you aware of AWS? Were they on your on your radar? What did you make of um, of the article?
2: Um, they were actually on my radar, and um, because I, I actually used to work on in software before I started working for like good part of Nixon cakes but but yeah, I mean I, I haven't realized that it's such an important piece to their strategy and and what keeps the, the wheels moving i I look at Amazon and I just find them absolutely fascinating. like you said, they made so many bets. it's that really built. Test, learn, fail model, and I, I absolutely love that. And I I used to work sort for of a company, and and they think exactly like that. It's constant testing and learning.
0: I thought it was a, a fascinating article, and you're right, Julie. You did make us work this week because it was a, a long read. Uh, Sorry, <laughs> but, uh, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, AWS was on, came on my radar a couple of years ago but I didn't understand the financials behind it so I knew it existed and I know when you ask anyone in the tech industry about AWS they're like oh, of course it is and it powers all this amazing stuff and everything from government systems through to FMCGs and a, a lot in between but seeing it mapped out there w- was fascinating and you write about that day one mentality that Jeff Bezos has um, I'd never seen it in those terms before when you talking about innovate aggressively and expand relentlessly and you think it for, for any business actually that that's really interesting to see how amazon are doing it still 26 years later
1: laura tell us about your final pick uh
0: so my final pick is the independent and it's morrison's becomes the first supermarket to sell hot cafe takeaways so this is um the 402 cafes that Morrisons have across their estate in um, the UK have obviously been closed because of COVID. Um, and these uh, supermarket cafes have been in huge growth across all the major malts Um over the last decade or so. So Morrison's stores have large uh, square footage dedicated to their um, uh, cafes and obviously the um, kitchens behind those. Uh, Morrison's have been really innovative haven't they over the last four months be it different boxes of uh, food Um, but one of the things that they've done is this call centre model you know they've really seen that Uh, Some of the more um, elderly customers maybe can't get online, can't get a delivery slot. Well, if they want any of these pre-packaged boxes of 27 items, then they can ring up and and get through to um, someone probably at Hillmore House that will then put them on a list and, and get some of those items out to them. Very much the same for their cafe delivery. So what it's saying is customers will be allowed to order in advance on a takeaway hotline number uh, to avoid crowding and social distancing problems in store. When calling, customers will be asked to give their postcode, select a store and give their order to their cafe staff. Um, which I think is really fascinating that some of these items it says in the article are as little as £1.95 you can be ordering a breakfast, lunch, afternoon tea or dinner um, and when you're thinking about you know we're cooking so much at home and people are looking for different options and the you know the two hour queues that we've seen for McDonald's a couple of weeks ago when they're reopened it'll be really interesting to see how well this does for Morrison's um, it also says and we all give them a mention almost every single week so let's not miss them out this week Deliveroo <laughs> is available uh, in some locations as well so some of the ones you don't actually have to stand and wait um, you, you can uh, you can get a Deliveroo order but it doesn't say um, how many or which ones but I think this is again you know the agility of some of these retailers thinking what can we do what can we do different and trial it and do you think supermarkets
2: will follow suit Julia? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really great article, and um, I, I'm not allowed to have any favorites, but um, <laughs> I, I really like Morrison as a as a business, and I, I've seen them doing tons of innovative stuff, and I know of some great innovation they have in the pipeline, which I'm not allowed to talk about, but it's, it's super great, and actually, then that whole idea about the boxes came about, Um, Morrison is super nimble and flexible. And, you know, my buyer actually had to then move on to doing half day on the phones and half day doing his day job and then doing something else. And they all have to have that super flexibility. It's a combination of doing the right thing, but it's it's also feel good value for the business itself. So it, it doesn't surprise me that they have now tested and learned and going to continue with that. And I think that can really set them apart.
0: It's fascinating to get your insight as a supplier. And um, just when you're talking there particularly about Morrisons, do you think they've been able to be more agile because of their vertical integration? Something I, I don't think they've maybe leveraged as hard as they could have done previously, but the fact they own so much of their own manufacturing that if they want to build a box of 27 items and switch that on in one of their factories tomorrow, then they can, and they've got control of it more so than maybe the others and relying on a supply base. Do, do you see that as an advantage or do you, do you see that's because of their culture and DNA?
2: I definitely see that as an advantage. And I think that is definitely one of the reasons why they haven't suffered as much. And they could be so innovative and nimble and they can push for boundaries with that. And and you're right. I mean, you know, they, they started with one box and at the end they had a vegan box, a gluten-free box. it was it was just incredible how many boxes they, they spun off. But that is because they could. And and I think it's definitely an advantage. And I hope they can see that as an ongoing advantage going forward but some of our concepts we're working on like i can see that they're doing that
1: i i also looked at this article as yet another example of morrison's doing something really interesting and innovative um and as you say i think they they've obviously laid the foundations uh, for that through their virtual integration for, for quite some time but it really feels like they have sort of hit their stride during the crisis almost you know sometimes that can be something quite galvanizing that sort of gets people to to really focus um and and come together as a business and really flex what makes them special to to launch you know services like like the delivery boxes um in in, you know a very short period of time but I also think they've done some other interesting initiatives that I think haven't anything to do with vertical integration but again talk to speak to the kind of values that are within the business so they um i thought did a really interesting initiative um where they converted some of their in-store pharmacy space into safe spaces for victims of domestic abuse who were left particularly exposed during the crisis so you know i i looked at them during coronavirus and and thought that's a business that seems really confident in picking initiatives and making moves quite quickly and being confident in, in hitting the right tone. Yeah, they were definitely a business to watch during COVID um, and I, I, I'm sure will continue to, um, to, to be one to watch as we sort of come out of that crisis as well. Julia, it was lovely to have you on the show thank you so much for reading all our very long articles i know i am primarily responsible
2: for upping everyone's um reading duties this week well thank you so much for having me it was was great fun and and Great selection of articles. I really enjoyed reading
1: them. We've loved having
0: you on. Thank you so much.
1: That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist.
0: Thanks again for listening. See you next time.